The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you again. Last time we talked about I was here, Luke 17, and the nature of Christ's kingdom, and that when the kingdom would come, It wouldn't be by observation, but it would be within a person's heart. And that Jesus associated that not with the already aspect of his passion, his ministry, crucifixion, ascension, giving of the Spirit, but he also connected that with the revealing of the Son from heaven. And that that's when the spiritual kingdom arrives. Today we're going to talk about how that kingdom is going to be manifested through the atonement process and Daniel's 77s. This is a prophecy that has been difficult but easy. Let me explain that. For us as preterists, it's easy because we let Jesus interpret it for us, right? Because when we go to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 15, Luke 21, 20 through 22, he interprets it for us. We know that Daniel 77s ends with the abomination of desolation. And Jesus tells us when that's going to take place. When you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, know that the end is near. So, although there's some tricky things with the chronology and where do you date the decrees and what is the 490-year period? Is it symbolic? Is it literal? We let Jesus interpret it for us and we can rest our head there. There's some sure pegs of understanding this passage. Uh, But at the same time, there are some difficulties. And let me tell you... There's nothing like having to change your view before you're teaching or preaching two days before you do I mean, I had this thing, I thought, figured out, um, and then within two days my view changed. And so I've had to, uh, at the last minute, just kind of go through here and change. But I'm really excited about the change I made, because I think that when we understand the first century expectation of Messiah, that he would not only come during the Roman Empire but he would come in a very specific time, the 10th cycle of the Jubilee. And this was a concept that I, I kind of knew about bits and pieces, but I never studied it, never thought about it. And then just the last few days, some things started clicking. And I hope to share those with you. As far as an outline, the first thing we're going to do is examine the parallel and recapitulation structure of Daniel 9 as it sits within the book. We want to look at chapter 2, we want to look at chapter 7 and chapter 12 and see the flow and the parallels because it doesn't stand alone. Point number two, we want to look at the three main themes of our passage. Point three, define the meaning of the 490 years period as it relates to the 70 years of bondage in the first century and of course that expectation of that 10th jubilee. Then lastly, fourthly, we want to exegete the particular text, namely the six events that Messiah is to accomplish during the last seven of this particular period. Where does Daniel fit within the context? Again, there's a problem here for a lot of systems. Dispensationalism needs this passage because they have to have a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And in that 2,000 plus year gap, they have to have this gap to justify a distinction between the church and Israel. They have to have that 
they have to have a literal seven-year tribulation period. And most important, we have to have this Antichrist that makes some treaty with Israel and stands in a holy place. And this tends to be the focus of their whole eschatology. And, of course, you have to have a rebuilt temple, right? Because we can't just address the temple that the disciples are looking at and Jesus is discussing, and this passage is, is discussing. But it also poses problems for Jews, because the Jews looked at this particular prophecy in Daniel 9, um, and, they, and you can read some of the rabbis, and they basically say, some of them are so discouraged, it's like, if Messiah didn't come before A.D. 70, then he's just never going to come. And then so what some of them developed is kind of like an open theistic view that, well, I guess we weren't good enough in that generation. And so we just have to work harder and pray harder and maybe Messiah will come later on down the road. No, God had a set time to send the Messiah. And it was during the Roman Empire and it was during this 10th Jubilee cycle. So where does our passage fit into Daniel? Let's start here. All right, so we want to look at Daniel 9 as it, is, as it sits in the context of the rest of the book. And, you know, dispensationalists like to usually isolate this passage and build their theology on it, or they go to Revelation 20 and the millennium, and they isolate it as this is the thousand year, and they just park there. And they refuse to see these passages as they relate to the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, and so that's why we want to look at this. Now, look at Daniel 2 in connection to Daniel chapter 7. All right? Basically, it's the same, same thing. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about the four kingdoms. Daniel has a vision about the four kingdoms. But Daniel is taught a little bit more. He's given more insight. Um, both depict four world, world empires. Both depict God's spiritual kingdom arriving during the time of the fourth. Both depict um, the last, well, Daniel 2 talks about the last days. Daniel 7 unfolds it about the time of the end. And then it's developed, in Daniel 7, we, we understand that the kingdom comes when the Son of Man comes on the clouds. And the old Greek Septuagint says he comes on the clouds as the Ancient of Days, not up to the Ancient of Days. There's a lot of confusion on that because so many people take that passage and they say it's the ascension. It's not. It's Christ's second coming and that's how it's developed elsewhere in the New Testament. All right, now let's look at some parallels between Daniel chapter 9 and 12. Both are about Old Covenant Israel. Both concern the time of the end or the end, not the end of time. Both speak of the abomination of desolation. And both speak about the consummation process, whether it's the judgment and resurrection of the dead or the atonement process, which is salvation from sin. It's the same concept. Both fulfilled when what? When there's this war, end-time war, when the power of the holy people are completely shattered, or when there's a flood, and then the end comes, when the Roman army surrounds Jerusalem. There's three main themes here. One, Messiah comes to establish his new covenant temple dwelling through his cross and parousia. Two, the restoration from Babylon, from the Babylonian bondage, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem in difficult times during the Second Temple and intertestamental periods. And then three, 
the last day's judgment of the Jews. Jerusalem and her temple will seal up vision and prophecy or fulfill all prophecy, thus cause the office of prophet to cease. Look at this chiasm structure of Daniel 9, 25 through 27. Notice there's an antithesis here. It begins with construction. It ends with destruction. Messiah is sprinkled in here in the middle of each of these sections. So the point is, Daniel, there's going to be a time of rebuilding. You're coming out of the Babylonian captivity and through Ezra and Nehemiah and Cyrus, there's going to be a rebuilding time for you. And it's going to be typology for what's going to come later on in the last seven. But then you have the Messiah come, and then you have these prophecies of destruction. And then it ends with hope, because he's going to anoint a most holy place, which is telling you right away that Messiah is going to build this new temple. And we know what it looks like in Ezekiel 40 to 48. We have other Old Testament passages that talk about the Messiah's work, when he comes to build a temple. And so, there's this antithesis. And we call this the doctrine of two Jerusalems. It's developed for us where? In Galatians 4, where you have the Old Covenant Jerusalem, which, is, which now is, which was Old Covenant and was physical. And then there was this Jerusalem from above. Zechariah 14 also talks about this doctrine of two Jerusalems. And it's confusing. It was confusing for the Jews, and it's confusing for futurists today. Because they don't understand... At, at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is glorified at the same time? How can this be? Well, if you're thinking physically, yeah, that's really hard to reconcile. But when you understand the destruction of one old covenant physical city is the time when the new is glorified and brought to maturity, then it becomes clear. All right, let's define the meat. And this is the kind of the bulk of this message. We really want to identify what is the 77s. Where does it come from? Why that particular number and no other number? And there are various literal chronologies that we want to look at, and there are also some symbolic views. B, and then we want to look at some Jews, how some of the Jews viewed the 77s or the 490-year period during the times of Jesus, because that will become key. And then C is the new view that I just came to two days ago that I'm totally blessed with. And I really believe that Leviticus 25 and 26 and this 10 Jubilee cycle is the key that really opens up the meaning of this 490-year period. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So we have that 490. Now it's going to be broken down. He says, now therefore, uh, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming in of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens, that's 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, that's 62 times seven, that's 434 years. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times. There's Ezra and Nehemiah. And after the 62 weeks, that is 483 years, an anointed one shall come and be cut off and shall have nothing. And then after that, we get into the last seven years, which is the time of Messiah, where we place both um, the already and not yet of eschatology is in that last seven years.
Here are some, this is how it's broken down. Um, if you're interested. And then here are the basic chronologies of people. People want to start the decree somewhere, right? <clears throat> There's a countdown. Most people really like Cyrus, but the problem with Cyrus, and even though he's a wonderful type of Christ and f- fulfills some incredible typology there, um, when you work out a literal 490 years, you, you come up very short to Christ. You're, you know, you're quite a ways away. Darius uh, in Ezra 6, 8, again, you're short. Now, this is Don's view. This is a, a popular view, uh, Don Preston's view, and it's found in Ezra 7, 11. And it basically breaks down to right around Christ's ministry, AD 26 and 27. So I'm interested in this particular view um, because it's hitting right at what I'm seeing in the Jubilee when Jesus announces that he's the Jubilee in Luke 4. The fourth view, um, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, again, a little bit late. Max King takes that view and he tries to whittle it down to AD 32. I don't think he's very successful in that. Um, here's a symbolic view. This used to be my view. Up to two days ago, this was my view. And you know why? Because I got tired of reading everyone fighting about which king and what order, and is he really Cyrus, and who's he... Do- and, and you don't go by this calendar, you go by that calendar, and, uh, you know, literal, how literal... It's, it's kind of a mess, I remember studying this in Bible college with all the charts, and I was just like, wow. And so I adopted this view, and that was basically, hey, the 490 years, it's like a 1,000 years in Revelation. It's a complete number. And when Jesus says, you know, and the disciples say, hey, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone? What does he say? That's right, 70 times 7. So we get that 490-year period. So I think you can still hold my view and that in that Jesus is basically saying, you know, when Messiah comes, he's going to forgive sin. And he's going to forgive it completely. So how dare you not forgive your brother? And what does he say? He says that we're to forgive others as our Father and Christ has forgiven us. And so this now becomes a number and a symbol for forgiveness. Not only of God's forgiveness towards us, but the way we treat each other. So, here is, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't the symbol, I've got, well, we're still a little bit off here on what you're getting and what I'm getting. There's the symbolic view. Okay, so, Lear, let's make sure you got, yeah, there we go. Okay, so Meredith Klein, he's a Reformed theologian, Old Testament scholar, very good, this is how he defines it. The 70 weeks, literally sevens, comprises a definite period of time until the coming of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem, a period that is actually longer than a literal 490 years. That's because he's going with the date of Cyrus. So he sees that if I'm going to work this out, there's no way I'm going to get to Jesus. So this has to be a symbolic period. The point of the 70 weeks is not to provide a precise chronological prediction, but to make a profound theological point that the coming of Christ and the abrogation of the Old Covenant order will usher in the eschatological Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, we're getting pretty close here. Let me see if I can get... Sam Storms, following climb, says this. 
He says, this all takes on special significance when we realize that there is decreed for Israel a total period of 77s of years, or 490 years, which is to say 10 jubilee eras. Okay, I love it. He's right on target, but he spiritualizes it. An, an intensification of the jubilee concept pointing to the ultimate anti-type jubilee. The purpose of the 70 weeks prophecy outlined was to secure the ultimate salvation, that release, redemption, and restoration of which the Jubilee year was a type or symbolic prefigurement. Gotcha. When Jesus declares that in himself the Jubilee of God has come, he is saying, in effect, that the 70 weeks of Daniel have reached their climax. The new age of Jubilee, of which all previous Jubilees were prefigurements, has now dawned in the person and ministry of Jesus. The goal of the 70 weeks prophecy is the consummate jubilee salvation of God. And he says it's a theological point, not a calendar kind of point. The problem with Storm's view, though, is that he spiritualizes it, and then when he gets to the last seven, he says, yeah, that's the already and not yet of Jesus' redemptive work. But he takes... He says, well, the first half of the seven was done with, at the cross and maybe some kind of aspect of, of Jerusalem's fall. But this last three and a half years, he spiritualized it for like 2,000 plus years. It's not in proportion. Even if you're going to spiritualize this, at least the numbers have to kind of sort of correlate with the time frames. That and the fact that in, in the Olivet Discourse, he takes the abomination of desolation as A.D. 70, but then when he goes to Revelation 11 and 12, where we get to that three and a half year number and the flight of Jerusalem out, he doesn't know what to do with it. That's what he's spiritualizing for 2,000 years when if you just let John and Revelation parallel with the Olivet Discourse, you see it's the same time frame. So that view doesn't work out real well. And that is, you know, I had a modification of that view. Now, yeah, see... The land Sabbath. I'm going to go ahead and just read because I know this is lengthy, but you really got to understand this or you won't understand the 490 years. Leviticus 25. I'm going to give you the land itself. You must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a rest for one year. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your men servants and maid servants and the hired workers and the temporary residents that live among you. Verse 8. Count off seven Sabbaths. Now, here's the Jubilee, all right? So we just talked about every seven years, you work six years, that, that last seventh year, you can't do anything, all right? The land has to rest for an entire year. That's what we just covered. Now we're getting into the Jubilee. It's a different Sabbath. Count off seven Sabbaths, seven cycles of these seven years, of years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, 
on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return his family, return to his family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and you are to make it holy. Now, how many of you are following our Bible reading that we have up on the site? Oh, no one. Oh, well, one first. All right, Dave, you get, you get a gold star. An example of the Jubilee is in Isaiah 37, which is our reading today. And at verse 30, God gives a sign to Hezekiah that, Hezekiah, what I'm telling you about protecting my remnant and, and you not seeing a Babylonian captivity in your lifetime. I'm going to give you a sign. And so, and he tells them basically that for two years, you are to keep the Jubilee. And on the third year, you can, you know, till the land. But it's going to be a difficult time. But in the meantime, know that since I'm keeping you in the land and you're, you know, you're keeping the Jubilee, this is a sign that I am going to do things in the future. And so... And what is the theology behind this? Because I started thinking about it. And the, basically, the theology of the Jubilee is, you know, you're not supposed to do anything to the land for a year. So you're thinking, and in the context it says, well, Lord, how are we supposed to eat? He says, don't worry about it, because in the sixth year, I'm going to bless the land so much, it's going to have so much of a harvest that it's going to get you through the next year. But on the Jubilee year, it's two years because you got that seventh year on top of the 50th year of the Jubilee. So, the point is, is that the land is to be barren. What happened in the garden? Were they working before the fall? No. The point is, is that this is a type of what God's going to do in the future and restore man back to the garden in Christ. And so, you don't till the land because this is a garden kind of setting and God's going to provide for you. I want you to rest like Adam rested when he was obedient until he fell. And these guys never could keep this Sabbath. They kept breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And so this is where, I don't know, I, I, I see something really cool. Why 70 years of Babylonian bondage? You ever think about that? Why? They were breaking the seventh day Sabbath. They were breaking the seventh year Sabbath. And so God says, I'm going to increase that. I'm going to multiply it by ten. And it's 70 years. Well, this is during the time of the Babylonian bondage. That vision of the four kingdoms. So this is in relation to just that period, the Babylonian captivity. But we have three more to go. We have three more world empires in which Israel is going to be bondage to. This is the other vision. This is how they're connected together in the context. And that is, you didn't just break the land promise, or the seven-year promise, you broke the Jubilee, 49. So, I'm going to take the same number. I'm going to increase it. This is your judgment. It's a tenfold judgment. And so now 49, you've broken these Sabbaths. It's going to be turned into 490 years. 
And so then during this 490 years, which is a jubilee, 10 jubilee cycles, is when Israel is going to be under dominion of Gentile rulers until Messiah Messiah comes at the end and brings in his spiritual kingdom during the time of the Roman Empire. Okay, now this is kind of some stuff I was finding on the internet and searching diligently. This is an Old Testament scholar, and this is profound. Look at it. In the Jewish mind, this is how they were thinking about the 77s. And I'm interested in what the mentality was when Jesus was ministering, not what some people are saying in seminaries. He says, for the Jew... 422 B.C. is associated with when the first temple burned. And he says, 70 sabbaticals, that is 490 years, before the second temple burned in A.D. 70. Margaret Barker, now, I'm not a big fan of, I don't believe women can be pastors. Uh, I, I don't really think they can be really conference speakers. It's just my personal conviction. But, I'm studying this thing, I'm, I'm hot on the trail, and this is the only article, two articles pop up, and they're both from women. So, Lord's humbling me. So, I see these two women that I'll be quoting as kind of the Debras of the Jubilee. Let's just, let's just put it that way. So, Margaret Barker says this. She says, the 70 weeks of years, 490 years, were 10 Jubilees. And the alternative way of reckoning this period of Daniel 9 was as ten jubilees. Jewish tradition remembered that the 490 years ended in 68 A.D. Well, there's A.D. 70, that's the parousia. Calculation from the second temple jubilee sequence beginning in 424 B.C. gives 66 A.D. A two-year discrepancy is hardly significant in the light of what it implies. Namely, that the 10th Jubilee began in 1719 um, A.D. In other words, now this is the point. In other words, 10th Jubilee fervor and expectations were the context for the ministry of Jesus. Now, I was a little... Surprised by this, so I want to do my own digging. So there's basically two things going on. Scholars don't know whether they should start the dating of the Jubilees from 424 or 422. And they don't know whether you you times it or you go by a 49-year cycle or a 50. So I just did it every way possible. All right? And this is what I found. Now, the first one, you can see AD 17. That's where she got hers. And then number three is where she got hers as well, AD 19. But look at number two. Um, I got AD 26, and that corresponds to the decree that started in 457, and it's right at the first year of Jesus' ministry. Um, So there are different ways of looking at this, and I finally found someone that actually agreed with me, if I can... Find it. Well, I don't know why my notes are not popping up, but I'm just going to go by the fly here, all right? Um, 
She goes on. The liberty of the Jubilee is interpreted as release from iniquities, the beginning of the atonement, which will occur on the day of atonement at the end of the 10th Jubilee. The return and the release from iniquity were to happen in the first week, the first seven years of the 10th Jubilee, approximately 19 to 26 A.D. If Jesus was born in 7 or 6 and was baptized when he was about 30 years old, Luke 3, he began his ministry during the crucial week, or the first seven of that, la- of that week of the Jubilee. This gives the context for the opening scenes of the Gospels. In the first week of the 10th Jubilee, Jesus was baptized with the Spirit, which was interpreted as his anointing. After his time in the desert, he returned to Galilee, announcing the time is fulfilled, the 10th Jubilee um, is inaugurated, and Melchizedek is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, because the final day of atonement was also at hand. Now, she's talking about Qumran 11 Melchizedek. The Jews during the time of Jesus expected this figure in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Psalm 82, Melchizedek coming, and he was going to judge the watchers. We're all familiar with that. And that he was going to fulfill Isaiah 61, and he was going to bring atonement. But what happens is Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you guys got this all wrong. All these passages you're saying that Melchizedek is going to come in this 10th Jubilee period, they apply to me. I'm the fulfillment of the Jubilee rest in me. And of course we know in Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So these guys were getting it wrong, but they all expected Messiah to come during this time and no other time. No other interpretation can be put upon the claim to have been fulfilled that day in Luke 4.21. The Jubilee prophecy in Isaiah 61, which was central to the Melchizedek expectations of the time. The first miracle was an exorcism, setting uh, setting one of his own people free from the power of Baal. He spoke of a woman bound by Satan and released her of slaves to sin whom the Son could release. He forgave sins and illustrated his teaching with parables of two debtors. So, in the Jubilee year, what happened? What what were they supposed to do? Not only was the land to rest, but if you were poor, yes, say you broke your leg and you're you're elderly, and we're talking about Veronica's dad and the flood and the hardship that he's experiencing. Now, in Israel's time, they had had a kind of a way to helping people, and that is, say I was elderly and I broke my leg and I couldn't work my land, and I I just fell into a hard place. I, I became poor. Well, they had a system where I can work for my neighbor, and he he could not own my land, but he could lease it. And he could, he could plow it and, and make money off it, and I can work for him. But in the Jubilee, if I didn't have enough money to pay him to get my, my land back, that debt was free. You can have this land. This land belongs to you and your tribe and your family. And so there was much joy in the Jubilee because your debts are forgiven. Can you see the picture 
of how Christ, when he comes in Luke 4, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61, I'm anointed, I'm the anointed one. I'm here to set the captives free and restore what is rightfully yours in me. And that is the paradise, the original paradise, where there's rest, where there's no toil. Let's get into the particulars of our passage. Having discussed the decree of this verse, it is important to know that verses 24 and 25 discuss two distinct periods. The first 483 years, or that period, is a time when Cyrus and and two or three other decrees by other kings get Israel back in the land to begin building the temple. It's during difficult times. You've got the sword in one hand, You've got your tool to build the wall and the temple and the other. So this is that difficult time. But I want you to think about it. God had a reason to drag this out. Because He wanted to teach us about the land and how He deals with the land and how He deals with your hearts. He told Israel, He said, break up the follow ground of your heart because it's hard. And I can't plant my word there and it can't grow because you become callous and you become hard. And they would say, no, we're not. Well, to prove that that is the case, I'm going to bring a famine. And I'm going to bring those covenant curses that I told you I'd bring upon you. And so he would teach them what was going on in their heart by doing something to their land. And that's why this whole Jubilee cycle and everything else connected to the land is a teaching tool about what's going on in the heart. And so as time goes on, he's raising up these Gentile powers and there's all this bondage and slavery. What's that teaching them? This is the slavery of sin, right? John chapter 8. They said, we're not enslaved to anybody. What are you talking about for the last 409? Of course you are. But he said, but ultimately you're enslaved to sin, And that's what all of this was really, really all about. So that's this this first period. This is difficult times coming back in the land. This is all typology. Because Ezra, Cyrus, Nehemiah, they're all types of Christ. And I would encourage you to go online and just look that up. Or do it yourself. Read Ezra, read Nehemiah, and ask yourself, how is Ezra and Nehemiah picturing Christ? How is Cyrus setting these captives free to go back to the land and build the temple and go into the land. How is that a type of Christ? I don't have time to develop that, but it's a rich, rich... And that period unfolds because Jesus is going to use that, just like the second exodus, as a teaching tool to show that he's the second exodus and that he is the new Cyrus, he is the new Ezra, he is the new Nehemiah. And then the second... um, passage deals with the seven, the last seven, which is Christ's redemptive work when he comes. So the first thing that we have here is to finish their rebellion. Now, some of your translations say finish transgression, which kind of means, does that just mean, is that just another way of saying he's going to forgive their sins? That's the next one and, and the one after that. This is dealing more with their rebellion. Remember when Israel was going to go into the land? What did he tell them? Why was there a delay? Other than their sin. He said the Amorites, their sin, what? Was, had not been filled up yet. 
God has a timetable for everything. And when that's, that gets to the point, you know, as a parent, you're saying, it's up to here, Junior, you know. So that's what's taking place here. So other translations say, to finish their rebellion must suffer as the price of their sins. And we know that Matthew 23, Jesus connects this sin of blood guilt, and he goes all the way back to Genesis and he says, it's going to be, you're going to fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Your father's killed the prophets. You're going to kill me. You're going to kill my apostles that I'm going to send you. And he says, all of this is going to be required upon this generation. And he connects this with the destruction of the temple in Matthew 23. And he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is not a salvation passage if you look at Psalm 118. Um, or Psalm 108, I believe it is. It's the song of ascent, and it's dealing with judgment. And that's how Jesus uses it in Matthew 21 when he says, the kingdom is going to be taken from you, and it's going to be given to a nation bearing the fruits thereof, which is the church. So this whole concept of filling up the measure, Jesus, again, points to eighty seventy. Well, how about Paul? Paul, same thing. Talking about the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. And this is not an isolated passage. If you go to chapter 1, he talks about what this wrath is going to look like. He uses apocalyptic language, and he talks about he's going to deliver the Thessalonians when he is revealed from heaven from the persecutions of the Jews. He's not saying you're going to die and then when I come someday, you're going, to be, you're going to experience relief. No, he says, when I come, I'm going to give you relief from your persecutors and I'm going to give these Jews a taste of their own medicine and I'm going to turn the tables and I'm going to give them the trouble. And that's what happened between eighty sixty six and eighty seventy. Trouble, 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 wrath up to the uttermost. The second thing Jesus is going to do in this last seven, he's going to put an end to sin. We talked about that. David uh, did a great job uh, on the communion this morning. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to have those who are eagerly waiting for him And then he says, in a very little while, in the next chapter, he would not tarry. This whole idea is the high priest imagery. That's the context of both of these chapters. The high priest would come in. He would do his thing on the Day of Atonement, go into the most holy place, put the blood on there, pray. But that was his first coming. That was his first, first aspect of the atonement. But he had to appear a second time. He had to come out of that and come back out to the people who were eagerly waiting because they wanted to know if they were going to be forgiven because the priest may have died if his heart wasn't right. And so they're eagerly waiting, are our sins going to be forgiven this year? And so he comes out a second time, sprinkles, applies it, and sins are forgiven. That is what this is talking about. But look when Jesus, or when the author of Hebrews says it's going to take place in a very little while. And he also connects it with the end of the age, which Jesus connects with the destruction of the temple and the Olivet Discourse. The end of the Old Covenant age, not the end of the Christian age. Romans 11. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Listen to David's message on uh, all Israel will be saved. Great. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant, the new covenant, which is the focus of Daniel 77, with them when I take away their sins. For salvation, forgiveness of sin, is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Again, Paul in Thessalonians or in Romans or anywhere he writes, he's always expecting the second coming to take place in their lifetime and generation because that's what Jesus taught and that's what's taught in the 77s. To atone for wickedness, for the covering over of iniquity. Look at Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If you go to Isaiah 65, 17, he's not going to remember your sin anymore. Again, this concept of jubilee. It's going to be forgiven. It's going to be dealt with. You don't owe it anymore. It's gone. And if it's gone, Brother Gary, why sometimes do we bring it up? Why was it Pilgrim's Progress, Giant Despair, Why do we spend so much time letting giant despair clobber us with that big club? Or we're stuck in the mud and we're just... God doesn't want us there, man. He wants us to repent and He wants us to rejoice in this forgiveness. And that's where we need to live. He tells us that Christ is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Look at Romans 4.24, Young's Literal Translation because it gets the mellow here, right, about to, but also on ours, to whom it, that in context is righteousness, is about to be reckoned to us believing on him who did raise up Jesus our Lord. Now, guys like N.T. Wright are coming along and they're trying to say that justification is kind of a future thing. It's kind of a vindication thing. It's not just something that we, we receive when we have faith. And that he would appeal to passage like this. This isn't a problem for me. It's a problem for futurists. My, I am justified because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and his parousia in AD 70. Look at Galatians 5, 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness for which we hope. They didn't have righteousness completely through the cross. It would come when the high priest came out a second time. First, Peter, first and second Peter, basically in chapter one, he says the inheritance, we're going to get it, we're ready, it's ready to be revealed. All the inheritance promises of the Old Testament, he says we're going to, we're for them and their generation. And he describes the inheritance, the ultimate inheritance of Isaiah 65 and 66, the new heaven and the new earth. What does he call it? A world of righteousness. Why? Because when you go through the gates of the city, your sins are completely forgiven. The the imputation, the righteousness of Christ is given to you on your account. And that's what the Father sees. He doesn't see anything else but Christ's righteousness. And it's because we're in the new heaven and new earth. We're not waiting for righteousness. We have it. To seal up vision and prophecy, or prophet, the office of prophet, this means to bring this office, the prophet, to an end because 
this prophecy is fulfilling all the prophecy in the Old Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus says in Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation, Daniel 9, what we're, we're looking at, has come near. Not 2,000 years later, not when a rebuilt temple takes place. Let's not read things into the passage. Let's not do eisegesis. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are outside the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. What? To fulfill some that is written. All that is written. And in context, all there refers to the, well, in Matthew's account, it's the end of the age, which is the old covenant age, the destruction of the temple, all the signs, and his coming. And in Luke 21, it's look at, lift up your head for your redemption draws nigh. This is the coming of Christ. It was predicted to take place in their generation. And so, these three verses in Daniel chapter 9 are like a, uh, a cornerstone. If you understand these three verses, basically you understand the whole message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, it deals with the period of Israel and the intertestamental period and in the Old Testament. And it deals with everything that Christ the Messiah is going to accomplish. And Jesus says it was all going to be fulfilled when the abomination of desolation took place or when Daniel's prophecy would be fulfilled. To anoint the most holy place. Christ anointed and consummated the new covenant church as his most holy place and bride. Hebrews 9, Revelation 11, and particularly Revelation 21, 16. I think for some reason this, be, this becomes my favorite verse. It doesn't matter what I'm teaching on. It seems like it always comes back to this. Why is the New Jerusalem a perfect cube? Anybody? Because it's the most holy place. In the temple structure, the holy place was a rectang rectangular shape. And the most holy place was a perfect cube. So what he's saying, when this new Jerusalem comes down, we don't need a temple because the city itself is a most holy place. The book of Hebrews tells us that we're the Zion. We're the city of the living God. And we are the new Jerusalem. We are. We're the new creation. We're the new Jerusalem. And where does God dwell? God dwells in us, in the new Jerusalem. And so, it's like, don't be discouraged because you're going to have to go through these periods of bondage to Gentile rulers and rebuilding a temple. And remember, when they rebuilt that temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, what did the older people do? They wept. They were disgusted. This was supposed to be a time of joy, but they looked at the temple and they said, this isn't anything compared to the other temple. And they wept bitterly. But there were promises of a coming temple that was going to be much more glorious than that temple. But they all think it's physical. Even most of the futurists out here are looking for some physical temple to be rebuilt. No! <laughs> Our cornerstone is Christ. And we're the temple. And we are the new Jerusalem. We are God's most holy place. He has anointed us. Now, verses 26 and 27 deal with the new covenant. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
there's parallel structure here to show you that it's talking about Messiah because these dispensationalists, they want to see Antichrist everywhere. And even some people want to see Titus or some other person. This is a prophecy about Messiah and what he's going to do through people. Verse 27, And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy and spoil the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations, are determined. Here's some more parallel. And he will make a firm or strong covenant with the many. This isn't Christ isn't laying down his life for everybody. It's for his sheep. Or in the midst of or for one week, or it's not for, it's in the midst of that last week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Verse 27. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Jesus, like I said before, interprets this for us. And he says, when you see armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that it's desolation and the end is near. This is parallel with Matthew twenty-four fifteen where he says the same thing when you see what Daniel the prophet spoke of. But it's a little different there. And he says when you see him standing in the holy place. And that's where these disciples say, oh, that's the Antichrist. He's going to come into the temple like Antiochus Epiphanes did in the Old Testament. And he's going to make this covenant. They're perverting Christ's new covenant with some covenant with the Antichrist. That's crazy, number one. But number two... It's, uh, it's bizarre because they never go to Luke 21 to let them harmonize together. And number two, they don't understand that the Jews, and you can look this up in Maccabees, the Jews looked at their land and they called it holy place. Not only did they consider their land as a, new he- as a heavens and earth, as G.K. Bill points out, they referred to their land as a holy place. So if a Gentile or the Romans came to desolate their city and they stepped on that land, what were they doing? They were on the holy place. So unfortunately, people read Matthew twenty four fifteen and they see this per- person or someone symbolic standing in a holy place and they think the temple. But that's not how Luke describes it. Luke describes the desolation as when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. They're on the holy place. So, I hope that helps. So, Jesus helps us interpret this. And the passage is about Christ. So, how does he, how do the people of the prince desolate the city? Well, Jesus owns everybody. He owned Titus. He owned, even when the Romans came, they said, Titus, I believe it was, said, I didn't do this. These people did it to themselves. The zealots came in there. There was war. Women were eating their own babies. It got so bad because they were destroying and devouring themselves. So the people of the prince, the Jews, they devoured themselves because they rejected the Messiah. Or you can look at the people of the prince as the Roman armies. I don't care. That's fine too. Jesus owns every king and and they do whatever he wants them to do. And you can even look at it this way. The imprecatory prayers of the church. 
In, in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs are under the altar. How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? In a very little while, when the number of your brethren are complete. In a very little while, not 2,000 years away. So, what did Jesus tell the disciples to pray? He came, he cursed the fig tree. He said, this fig tree is not going to bear any fruit. And it was what? A symbol of Israel. Because they rejected Messiah. He's going to take the kingdom from them. He's going to curse it. It's not going to bear fruit. And he says, I'm going to give the kingdom to another nation. That's the church. We bear fruit. But in the same context, what does he say? He teaches the disciples. He says, you're going to be able to pray. If you, you pray in faith, you'll be able to say to this mountain, uproot, get out of here. What do we see in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 8, Revelation 20. There's this mountain that's uprooted. It's put on fire and it's thrown in the lake of fire. That's apostate Israel. The church prayed, God, vindicate us. And God did in AD 66 to AD 70. So I want you guys to see that it's this 10th Jubilee cycle that the Jews were expecting Messiah to come. It wasn't just during the Roman Empire, but he was to fulfill this period. And when you date it from 422 or 424 to that to AD 26, you get that 490-year period. And it fits perfectly with the Jubilee. So I want to get together with smart guys like David, Don Preston, that are kind of doing this thing with the feast days and get them kind of excited about this and see what we can we can get. But I don't think the gap is really an issue between Christ's work in the first half of the seven and then his parousia in AD 70. I think it's more of what's going to be accomplished in that last cycle, Jubilee cycle. And he fulfilled everything within that cycle. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have brought us back into our original inheritance. Lord, we were broken after Adam sinned, dead in sin, dead in trespasses. We couldn't pay back. We couldn't get back there. There's no way we could until you sent Yeshua, Lord, and you paid our debt, and you've brought us back into the new creation, back to the tree of life, where he who believes on you, Lord, will never die. And Lord, we rejoice in that because we will never be separated. We will never die from you. Thank you, Lord, for restoring what was lost in your Son. Lord, cause us to go forth in the Jubilee, in the new covenant age, rejoicing because you have set us free. And then now teach us, Lord, how to treat our neighbor that we don't put bondage and we don't put burdens on them, but because we come to them with the freedom that you've given us and we forgive and we love them as you love us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Mike, are you going to do like David and ask a question? Oh, yeah. If you guys have any yeah, questions. I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm just oh, yeah, that's fine. I don't know how if we can get them. Let me turn on my phone. I don't think anyone has my number, so I can't really do what he does there. Right. <laughs> but if you guys have any questions, what do you... I don't have a question, but just... Thank you.
Well, man, I tell you, it was just, it was uh, this jubilee thing. I mean, it's just, it's right there. You know, I, I understand why Don Preston, William Bell, Dave, who c- kicked this whole thing off with the feast days, right? I see how all this lines up with what Jesus does always corresponds to these feast days. And this whole jubilee cycle now, they were expecting some Melchizedek figure, some Messiah figure to show up right then. And no other time. I don't see anyone in history at this time claiming they were Messiah. I mean, you do kind of towards AD 66 with the false prophets, but during AD 26, no one else stood up and read Isaiah 61 and said, the Jubilee is here and I'm the fulfillment of it. I don't see anyone doing that. And that's what they were expecting. That's why everyone was just like, oh, I can't believe this is it. And then he goes out right after that and starts doing the work of the Jubilee, setting captives free, um, talking about two men that owe debts to God. I mean, everything is there. It's just a beautiful unfolding of these feast days and the Jubilee. So I think it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's everywhere. You know, Jesus said, or Paul says in Second Corinthians one twenty that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. You know, you know if you don't have a, a hermeneutic that wants to see Christ in Scripture, uh, you need to re-examine it, you know, because he's everywhere. You study Ezra, you study Nehemiah, you study what Cyrus does and setting everyone free and coming back in the land and building the temple. That's what Christ does. Through the church, through the early church, that messianic temple was being built up. That's us. And he was restoring us in him. Under the old covenant was in the land. New Testament, Paul uses it 66 times. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's the antitype of all of their redemptive history.